0: Morning everybody. This morning we come to the very final part uh, of our Shaping Virtues series. For several months now we've been looking at seven shaping virtues, fruits of the gospel that are important to be worked out in our lives as individual Christians, but also in the life of a healthy gospel church too. And uh, we've we've, uh, gone through Uh, six so far. In fact, just to say, there are still some uh, journals on the back table there, and uh, that journal particularly goes through these seven shaping virtues. It's a really good read, very encouraging read, Uh, and the fact that we're finishing the series doesn't mean it's too late to read it. In fact, there'd be a great way to follow up the series, if you haven't done already, to dip into that book and start to read this morning, we are looking at the theme of godliness, and to help us with this, I wanted to really focus in on Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. So would you turn there, uh, Titus chapter 2, towards the end of the Bible, one of Paul's later letters. Titus two eleven 11 to 14, a passage that is, amongst other things, very much about godliness. Here is what the Apostle Paul writes. and to purify for himself, a people, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Well, I'm sure it has not escaped your notice that it has been a fairly wet week. And uh, although it stopped now, earlier this morning, the setup team were doing an amazing job, more amazing even than normal, because there was hail and there was torrential rain and there was all sorts of things going on outside. So thank you so much to everyone that uh, endured that in order to allow us to do this now. Uh, I was chatting as well with uh, Marcus and Bree that were here last weekend. I know some of you met them on Sunday, visiting from one of our sister churches in Australia. And I felt I had to apologize a little bit for the weather. I tried to assure them it's not always like this. It's not always gray and wet and miserable, Uh, although I think they were kind of enjoying it, actually. I think it was part of the authentic English experience, you know, brolly in hand, getting drenched. But there's certainly been enough rain this week for some flooding. And especially just a few miles down the road, I hear in Canesham, there was, there was various localised flooding. Locals there saying it's the worst they've experienced in 20 years. Trains were delayed. Cars were stranded in what looked like small rivers. Uh, rugby matches were cancelled because the pitch was deep underwater. It's, it's not always a pleasant thing. But as you'll know, sometimes flooding can be far more deadly Kent Hughes, in his commentary on Paul's letter to Titus, he recounts the events of a particular deluge of rain and rising flood water in Southern California not too many years ago. And there, apparently, the greatest danger from excess rain comes from the mudslides. And so he recounts the following story. One winter, he says, the potential dangers of mudslides became a real nightmare for one family. While the family was still in their home, a wave of mud tore through the house, severing it and sweeping a sleeping baby out into the night. The parents began to search through the darkness for the child, tromping through the mire that had descended upon their whole neighborhood. They searched, dug, and called for their child throughout the long night without results. When morning came, a rescuer himself covered in mud, came to the parents with a mud-caked bundle in his arms, the baby, filthy but alive. You know what the mother then did? She clung to her child despite its filth, washed the muck away, and determined to keep the child out of the mud in the future. And here's what Kent Hughes goes on to say. This account helps me understand concepts in this passage that are so opposed to our common ideas about the nature of God's grace. Grace, we know, cancels our works as the means of securing God's affection. The natural human inclination, then, as a result, is to suppose that if our good works do not determine God's affection, there's no reason to do them. Why be concerned about godliness since we are saved by grace? Because... Say the scriptures, when the filth of my sin was sweeping me in my helplessness to eternal death, my God covered himself in the muck of this world to rescue me, embrace me despite my filth, and now wants me to remain out of the mud. Such grace, he says, should make us so in love with God that we cannot stand whatever in our lives re-soils us and offends him. Biblical grace, rightly perceived, compels godliness. And that's what our message this morning and what this particular passage in Titus is about. How it is that the grace of God, when rightly understood, compels us towards growth in godliness. And I'd like to do this in two parts this morning. We're going to see firstly how it is that God's grace saves the ungodly And then secondly, how God's grace makes the ungodly godly. So first of all, God's grace saves the ungodly. Have a look again at verse 11. Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The first thing to notice here is that there is only one path to godliness. I wonder if you've ever found yourself on a car journey, maybe it's in an unfamiliar location, trying to find your way onto the motorway. Uh, And you've seen general signs for it. Sometimes it's in brackets, isn't it? Which I think implies it's somewhere, but not too near. It's far away, but it's over there in that direction. You've seen the signs. Maybe you've even spied it in the distance. Perhaps you've even crossed a couple of bridges and gone over it. But you know there's only one way to actually get down to it and onto it. And that's to find the slip road that joins it. Well, in a similar way, while there can be lots of places in life where we might catch glimpses of godliness, in the pages of the Bible, in other people, in a church service, in something we read or see, there's only one on-ramp or slip road by which any of us can actually get down onto the road of godliness for ourselves. And it begins with the grace of God appearing to bring salvation, Godliness doesn't in any way begin with ourselves, with our own efforts or resolve to improve our moral character. If it did, none of us would stand a chance. Left to ourselves, there is no one who is godly in character. The Bible tells us no one who seeks God. None is righteous, no, not one. But godliness begins with the grace of God bringing salvation. God's grace is his undeserved, unearned favor, his choice, or or better yet, his passion to bestow on his creatures that which we categorically do not deserve. The good news of Christianity is not that God saves the godly and the righteous, but that the grace of God has appeared to save the ungodly and the unrighteous. And that becomes even clearer still when we realize this grace in verse 11 isn't just a vague concept or a a disembodied power. It It has ultimately appeared in a person. The grace of God has appeared in the person of God's Son, Jesus Christ. The one who himself said, came not to call the righteous but sinners. It says in Romans 5 verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. Christianity then is not good news for the godly, it is good news for the ungodly. And so if you're here this morning, and you're fairly happy that you're already suitably godly, you're not looking for the message of Christianity. You need the message of Christianity, but so long as you're pretty assured about your own godliness and goodness, you're not looking for it, and you won't be able to receive it. But for those who know enough about God and enough about themselves to know they're not godly, this message, this good news, this Jesus is the most welcome news in all of the world. Because while we were utterly helpless and powerless to save ourselves, Christ died for the ungodly. And to that, my heart says, hallelujah, and I trust yours does as well, because surely this is my only hope. I, for one, have no interest in a gospel that is only for the good and the godly. I wouldn't qualify for it. I wouldn't be allowed anywhere near it. If you had to apply for it at the post office, my poster would be up on the wall behind the counter saying, if you see this man, do not serve him, call the police immediately, do not give him salvation. This man is ungodly and undeserving. My only hope and your only hope is that there might be a gospel for the ungodly. One for which our very ungodliness would qualify us. A Christianity for those who deserve the opposite of life and salvation, who cannot muster up a single penny of good works in exchange for it. What an overwhelming relief it is then to find that in the kindness of God there is such a gospel. There is in fact only one gospel. Not one gospel for the godly and another for the ungodly, but just this one true gospel for the ungodly and undeserving. It's no wonder that the great hymn writer Charles Wesley, and we're going to sing this at the end, uh, only too aware of how long his spirit had been hopelessly imprisoned, fast bound in sin and nature's nights, when his eye finally came to rest upon this gospel. He sung of his waking to find the dark dungeon of his soul, flamed with light. My chains fell off, he wrote, my heart was free, I rose, went forth and followed thee. And all down the ages, that grace of God that first appeared with ascending and dying and rising of God's Son has subsequently broken through again and again into the lives of the most ordinary and unimpressive men, women, and children everywhere. In the lives of every person who's come to see their own ungodliness and need of a Savior and who've turned then in repentance and faith to trust in Christ who died to save the ungodly. So if you're sat here this morning listening to this sermon on godliness, maybe if you knew what we were going to be talking about ahead of time, you were already a little bit daunted. Is this for me, godliness? It's a struggle for me. If you're sat here this morning most aware of your own ungodliness, the gospel is the most liberating news that you will ever hear in your life. The grace of God has come To save the ungodly. And that's the first half of the best news that has ever been announced. But here's what we sometimes forget. That the second half is just as good as the first. Because the grace of God doesn't end there. God's grace has come to save the ungodly for a greater purpose. In order, by his grace, to actually make the ungodly godly that's our second point this morning. That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time, most of our time exploring. God's grace makes us godly. Now, if we thought it was mind-boggling enough already to consider that a holy God would even consider stepping forth to rescue the unholy and the ungodly, that he would step down like that rescuer in the beginning, right into that muddy landslide of human sin and wickedness, in order to lift up lifeless, sin-caked bundles in his arms. Well, what's just as remarkable, if not more so, is that he doesn't stop there, but proceeds to wash us completely clean and make us godly in his sight. Well, how does he do this? How does he make us godly? How does he make the ungodly godly? How does he turn sinners into saints? The Bible's answer is that he does it in three distinct ways. inseparable ways through three stages called justification, sanctification, and glorification. Don't worry if you're not so familiar with those terms. One of them past, one present, and one future, all playing their part in God's plan to actually make the ungodly godly forever. First of all, God's grace perfectly justifies us. Justification is what happens when God declares guilty sinners to be not guilty and instead positively righteous in his sight, simply by virtue of their having trusted in Christ. Justification is something that God does to us, solely by himself. We play no part in this. It is by his grace as a gift, Romans 3.24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Justification has got nothing to do with our own efforts or attempts to be more godly. Justification is a gift given, in fact, very explicitly, Romans 4, verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. What Romans 4, 5 is saying is that if you want to earn it or work for it, you can't have it. Justification is by faith alone, and that's because it involves a great exchange. Our criminal record of sin and ungodliness is swapped out and changed in an instant with someone else's record of perfect godliness and righteousness. And back here in Titus 2, verse 13, Paul tells us who that perfect someone is. Verse 13, it's our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to, pur- to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Christ laid down his life for us, paying the price and taking the punishment for all of our ungodliness, redeeming us, this verse says, from all lawlessness. This language of redeeming, of course, is taken, as many of you will know, from the world of slave-owning. It's a reminder that we were, all of us at one time, enslaved to sin, enslaved to ungodliness. And just as a slave has nothing that they can contribute to buy their freedom, so we couldn't contribute anything to buy our redemption. We couldn't buy our own way out of slavery to sin and ungodliness. Only Christ giving himself for us could free us. And that is precisely what he did. He redeemed us. From the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And all of this means that the very first moment a person turns in repentance and faith to Christ, God in that very moment declares them holy and righteous and pure in his sight. He declares you godly in his sight, not because we're any such thing yet in practice, but simply because he's clothed us in the perfect spotless righteousness godliness of his son. Once that happens, once an ungodly person is justified by faith, that status before God can never be lost, never taken away. It rests entirely on Christ's finished work. It depends not one bit on our past or present or future performance. Once justified, Let me reassure you now, every Christian still battles with sin and finds himself needing to repent every single day of our Christian lives, but never has a single Christian fallen out of, or even just yo-yoed up and down out of, being justified before God in Christ. In this sense, every Christian is forevermore holy and godly in God's sight. But God's glorious plan for us to be godly does not end there. Because having made us holy in Christ, the very first nanosecond we believed, he then sets into motion a process here in the present to make us increasingly holy and godly in practice in every aspect of our lives. Or to put it more succinctly, God's grace progressively sanctifies us. God's grace progressively sanctifies us. This is the next stage, growing us slowly but steadily, day by day, to actually display increasing godliness in our lives. Look again at verse 14. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Why did Christ die? Why did Jesus die? Not only that we might be pardoned and forgiven and redeemed, though those things are incredible in themselves, but he also died to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We have been saved for good works. Saved in order to become passionate about good works and about godliness. Let me stress again, we are not saved by works but we are saved very clearly for works. You hear it, listen to these verses in Ephesians 2, because it just lays this out so clearly side by side. Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So not saved by good works, but for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is why Christ died. It's as, if, it's as if a person has come and found us locked up on death row. And they've not only stepped into our shoes, into our cell, to take our sentence of death upon themselves, but they have in exchange given us their shoes. All of the blessings of their life to step into and embrace and enjoy welcoming us into their home and their lifestyle and their family to live out a whole new life with them rather than just return to the squalor of our old ways. Christ came to rescue us from sin and to godliness and both the from and the to are equally glorious. We show contempt for such a great salvation even when we treasure one and not the other. We ought not to be like the child rescued from the mudslide who thinks they've been rescued in order to go and play around in other mudslides. Because what kind of honor would that show to the rescuer? As Daniel Aiken writes, Christ purchases us to purify and cleanse us, to take us out of the pig pen, not help us enjoy the pig pen. Christ died to save us and sanctify us and so set us on this path of ever-increasing godliness. And we see this, don't we, all over the New Testament. Right there, side by side, all the way along, side by side with rich reminders of God's saving grace in Christ, rich reminders of what God has done for us in Christ. We see them side by side. For example, those rescued by the gospel are now called to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Philippians 1.27 Those made holy through the sacrifice of God's Son are told now to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12.14 Those whose sin and guilt has been completely washed away are now told to cleanse themselves from every defilement, of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1. We have been saved, if we're Christians, completely out of the deadly mire of ungodliness and sin in order that we might go forward intent on living clean. Not intent on returning to make our home in the filth from which we've been redeemed. Again, it's not that the true Christian doesn't stumble and fall and fail in trying to live out godliness every single day. The, the true Christian stumbles and falls into s- sinful thoughts and attitudes and behavior a thousand times a day. But what he or she does have now that they didn't have before, that we didn't have before, is a new desire in our hearts A desire to be godly. The Christian life is a gruelling daily battle precisely because this desire has been planted there. Because a new heart of godliness given us by the Spirit now dwells within us alongside our old ungodly nature. Just go read Galatians 5 or Romans 7 to see what a battle it is. The fact that you and I, I was going to say might be battling, I trust we are battling, that it feels like a gruelling battle. The fact that we're battling shouldn't be any source of concern to us. It should, in fact, encourage us. The time to worry is when there's no battle taking place at all. No No desire for godliness, no willingness to repent, no frustration and heartache when we surrender again and again to sin. Because just as there's no such thing as a perfectly godly Christian, there's also no such thing as a completely unchanged, ungodly Christian either. A Christian who shows no desire for godliness, no sign of a changed life, and no sign of good works. Once again, we are justified by faith alone and not by works, but genuine saving faith will always have with it However imperfectly, it will begin to produce the fruit of good works and godliness. Just like planting a tiny but genuine apple seed in the ground will result eventually in producing a real apple tree. James 2, verse 17 tells us faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In the words of John Calvin, it is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Luther goes on to explain, we are not saved by works, but if there be no works, there must be something amiss with faith. So we are saved by faith alone, but if it is saving faith, it will bear the fruit of good works. If there's no desire in us this morning to put away sin and put on godliness, no desire to repent of obvious grievous sin in our lives, we must examine our faith to see if it is in fact real at all and if we find that it's not if your faith proves false and dead then today is the day God invites you to repent and believe for the very first time whatever mess your life is in it is not too late today if you hear God's voice do not harden your heart as perhaps you've been doing for so long up to now Instead, run to Jesus in repentance and faith, and you will be saved, and you will begin to change. But what about those of us sat here this morning, and and this is the majority of us, I'm confident, who are genuinely already clinging by faith to Christ, and precisely because we have been raised with him to new life in him, now we have tender consciences that are easily thrown into doubts and fears about our own lack of godliness and about our own struggles, long-term struggles with particular sins. First of all, let me reassure you that only the new birth and only the Holy Spirit in a Christian's heart can make a conscience so tender that it longs to be more godly and simultaneously despairs but falling so far short. If your your conscience is tender, listening to this this morning, that's a really encouraging sign of the Spirit's work. And remember, Christ didn't die to here and now make us perfectly godly in practice. Far from it. He died to here and now awaken in us a desire for godliness and to begin to help us grow in it. Even if in practice, and much to our own heartache and frustration, we often fall far short. Just like the Apostle Paul describes, so, so reassured it's the Apostle Paul himself describing his own experience in Romans 7. It's like he's looked into my head and my heart and given me words to describe the turmoil. He says, Romans 7:22, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am. But second of all, a further piece of encouragement, which is that just as all hope of salvation rests in the grace of God, all hope of our growing in godliness also rests in not in our own strength, but again in the powerful grace of God. Sanctification, just as much as justification, relies completely on the grace of God. The only difference is that with justification, God does everything without us. He does it all without us and alone. But in sanctification, we now have an active part to play, responding to the promptings of the Spirit and to God's empowering, motivating grace. So, with that in mind, that sanctification is by grace as much as justification. Have a look again at verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So in verse 12, uh, Paul now pictures God's grace as taking on the role of a teacher. Here is how we grow. The same mighty grace that saved us in verse 11 now goes on to teach and train us in verse 12. Just like a, maybe a parent teaching a child, nurturing, encouraging, instructing, sometimes disciplining, all with the intent of, of teaching the inward heart and training and transforming the outward life. To put it another way, God's saving grace enrolls us in the school of sanctifying grace. So the day we're saved, God enrolls us in the school of his sanctifying grace. And and we, all of us, begin in reception. Remember reception? Reception class. I don't know if you remember your first day of school, but none of us, I don't think, were fast-tracked into year five or six. We started in reception. I've only got the vaguest memories of my first day at school, uh, walking in, taking off my bag, basically being clueless, not having a clue what was going on or what I was meant to be doing. I couldn't read. I couldn't write. I couldn't even properly blow my nose. But the fact was, I was now enrolled in school and the opportunity to learn was just beginning. And my teacher, and it's funny, isn't it? I don't know about you. I've forgotten lots of my teachers' names, but I remember the, I feel like you remember your first teacher, Mrs. Haig. Looking back, I realised she must have had the most incredible patience towards a class full of clueless four-year-olds with very runny noses. And never once do I remember her condemning us for what we didn't know. What she did do is welcome us warmly into her classroom, and I'm I'm sure she was confident of how much we were going to learn, not because of anything in us, but because she was there equipped and experienced and able to teach us. The reason our growth... So it would be slow, was guaranteed, was not because of us, but because of her, because we had a very qualified teacher. And in a similar way, when God saves us and welcomes us into his school of grace, the day we first become a Christian, he begins bit by bit to teach us. He starts us off in reception. And he does so with the utmost patience as well, knowing how little we know Knowing from where we've come, knowing how ungodly we once were. And that patience he shows towards us, unlike some of the teachers I encountered further on in primary school, they were more scary. God's patience doesn't wane. It doesn't diminish the longer we're enrolled in the school of grace. But along with that patience, he also makes sure and certain promises about the fact that we will grow Under grace's tutelage, not because we're great pupils, but because God's grace is a great teacher. And next of all, Paul tells us what it is in particular that God's grace will teach us and train us to do. Verse 12, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Firstly, he says, grace teaches us to renounce or say no to ungodliness. That's a word there which refers particularly to our outward conduct and behavior. Grace teaches us to say no to behaving in sinful, ungodly ways. In outward speech and in outward actions, it teaches us to say no. But it also teaches us, he says, to say no to worldly passions, which is speaking of our internal desires, of our lusts and cravings, everything from sexual temptation to anger, hatred, pride, ambition, jealousy and more and this here I think is something especially to find great encouragement and hope in sometimes even when we feel like okay I feel like I could control my outward actions we can feel like we're completely at the mercy of our innermost thoughts and desires we we can feel like we're a powerless slave to the ungodly passions that wage war within us that we cannot in any way address them or pour water on them But verse 12 says that simply isn't so. Don't be taken in by the devil's lie. God's grace in Christ is mighty enough to even teach us to say no to our deepest sinful sinful thoughts and desires. Not necessarily to remove them entirely, but certainly to say no to them in any given opportunity. To, To refuse to indulge them. To douse them with the sparkling cold water of God's grace. Not. As well, let's be clear, as a one-time thing, this is not, oh, I'm going to renounce my sin today and I'll walk out of here sinless forever. No, it's every time those worldly passions and desires begin to rear their ugly heads. This word renounce carries with it the idea of something you keep on doing. Without God's grace, we are powerless to say no. But if we're dependent on his grace and if we cry out for more of his grace, In every time of need, he promises to give us the strength we need to say no to our innermost ungodly desires. He promises to help us wage war on them. But we're not finished yet. Grace doesn't only train us to say no to ungodliness. It also trains us to say yes to genuine godliness, Uh, to not only put off but put on, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And the first two of these self-controlled and upright, they are essentially the opposite of worldly passions and ungodliness. Paul's kind of doing the flip side now. We can put off and we can put on. So he says, grace, first of all, can train us inwardly to increasingly exercise self-control over our innermost passions and desires. To not only put away sinful thoughts, but actually fill our minds and hearts with that which is good and pleasing to God. To put on and grow in all of these shaping virtues that we've been exploring together, to grow in humility and joy and gratitude and much more. Grace can train us to do this more and more. Grace, Paul says, will also train us outwardly to live outwardly upright lives in the way that we behave and conduct ourselves, training us to speak truthfully, wholesomely and lovingly. And to behave and act in ways that positively serve and bless and do good to other people. And thirdly, Paul says, I think it's interesting as well, he adds three. I don't know what to read into that, but two on the negative side. But it allows us to do three things on the positive. Paul says grace will train us upwardly as well, to live godly lives, which is a particular reference to how we live now in relation to God. So grace trains us to, on the inside, it trains us sort of horizontally in how we behave. It also trains us in how we now relate to God. And this, I think, is surely the most important of the three. This final one reminds us the Christian life is not ultimately about mere Morality, mere inner self-control and outward upright behavior. No, it's ultimately about a new life lived in relationship with God, with our eyes fixed on God himself in Christ, with our hearts exercising a deepening trust in him and growing in deeper love and longing to be with him. Deeper love to long for him and longing to be with him. Especially because finally this morning, we know where God's glorious plan for us is heading. God's grace that first came to justify us and then proceeds to sanctify us will one day return finally to complete its work and perfectly glorify us. So thirdly and finally, God's grace will one day glorify us. Have a look at verse 13. All of this training and striving... And tears and heartache to growing godliness in our lives right now, it already has a sure and certain end in view. We are, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One day, Jesus is coming back in glory. And our future sinlessness and perfect godliness is a sure and certain thing because he is returning. While it might not feel like it most days, we, as we continue to battle our remaining sin and oftentimes feel like we're going backwards rather than forwards, still the future for the Christian is certain and secure. Every Christian's future is bright and glorious and full of godliness because when Jesus returns in his glory, when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is, and in the twinkling of an eye we shall be changed. God has made known to us the end from the beginning, and therefore we have a sure and certain hope of godliness. We can be sure. We can have hope. And so we ought to live as those who are doing what feels physically impossible, but trust me, it works spiritually, and that is to continually be looking both backwards and forwards at the twin horizons of Jesus' first and second appearing. We should look back each day to when the grace of God first appeared in Christ, bringing us a full salvation at the cross, where he died to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And equally, we should look forwards each day to the promise of his return for he's coming back to complete the work he's begun in us he will come and raise us to a new life of perfect sinless godliness together with all of god's people forever john stott writes this looking back and looking forward this determination to live in the light of christ's two comings to live today in the light of yesterday and tomorrow this should be an essential part of our daily discipline We need to say to ourselves regularly the great acclamation, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And finally, with those two horizons, always in our view, let's remember that here and now we can draw near with confidence to Christ's throne of grace each day, to receive mercy and find grace to help in every time of need, Including in our help, uh, including help for our pursuit of godliness and help to do battle with our sin. For it is God, we're told, who is at work within us, giving us both the will and the strength to grow in godliness for his good pleasure. And so may God receive all the glory for his work in our life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have saved us from sin and death. For nothing less than eternal life and godliness. Lord, we thank you too for showing us so clearly in your word this morning how it is all from start to finish entirely by your grace. Oh Lord, we pray help us to rest in your justifying grace. Help us all to depend on and cooperate with your sanctifying grace and help us look forward with Great, with the greatest longing and eagerness for the return of Christ and the gift he will bring of glorifying grace. Lord, may we keep our eyes fixed on those two horizons of Christ's coming, the one behind and the one ahead. And Lord, as we wait, help us to go on pursuing growth in godliness, we pray. Not just in our individual lives, but Lord, help us to do this together as a church, stirring up one another to love and good works, encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Amen.